This morning we start a brand new series entitled Burning Questions. We've done this series in the past uh, before, years past, and uh, with, every time we do it, it's a, a different topic. It's been a few years now since we rolled this out. I think a few years back we did a Burning Questions series on uh, marriage and relationships, and then we did one as well a little bit after that on the church. And so this Burning Question series is on Christianity. That's the, the topic, and, and I'll share a little bit more about kind of how it works. But basically, it's just, um, just an opportunity for us to ask questions. We would never ask with our hands up in a crowded space. Uh, we would never ask this question, uh, you know, with our name attached to it, but anonymously we'd be glad to ask because it's a question that's been rattling around for a while. You may have questions like that. And so that's what we're looking at in the series, just asking and inviting those kinds of questions, regardless of what the motive is, regardless of whether you're for Jesus or against Jesus, uh, uh, asking and soliciting those questions. And so Burning Questions is the series, Christianity is the topic, and uh, we're going to look to go through God's Word each week as we look at a different set of questions. So today is just the, uh, today's just the intro, right? We're just going to kind of introduce the, the series today. Some of what we shared this morning we're going to come back to as we move through this series uh, of Burning Questions on Christianity. Uh, but today we kick it all off. So let me ask you a question. Just kind of think outside the box for a moment. What would life be like if we never asked questions. I mean, think of what would be lacking if we never asked questions. In a sense, probably some of the greatest inventions that have ever been made, some of the greatest discoveries that have ever been discovered would have gone undiscovered, uninvented if we didn't ask questions. When you think about it, even the lights that we have in this room and the lights that you have at home started probably because Thomas Edison began to ask some questions. And I can imagine that maybe it started when he asked himself one night, you know, what it would be like if, uh, if we could somehow create light in a space that wasn't a candle that would just burn on and on and on even after the sun went down. Maybe it was a question like that that started his pursuit. Ultimately, we had the invention called the light bulb that came as a result of it, all because a question was asked. Think about, we wouldn't have any marriage proposals if no questions were ever asked, right? You'd just be dating all the time. I mean, you'd be dating for like 40 years, and nobody would ever pop the question because it is a question, and, uh, and it would never be able to be answered. And so we wouldn't even have marriage proposals. We wouldn't have any teamwork because a lot of teamwork comes from asking questions. We wouldn't have any collaboration. You know, maybe in your, in your field of work, there are times where you have to sit down with coworkers or other leaders, and, and you have to ask questions of one another, questions of certain things. And out of that, that, that questioning time comes collaboration, it comes teamwork, it comes kind of a group effort. All of that would be non-existent if we didn't have the opportunity ultimately to ask questions. And here is maybe even the biggest of all, right? You would have no Google if you didn't ask questions. I mean, you would have Alexa, you would have, hey, Google. How many of you have, you know, one of those devices in your home? Any of you, right? Probably quite a few of you. You probably talk to it, you know, as a kind of a daily routine. And uh, as I do, I find out a lot of scores in baseball games and ball games, right? Because I get to ask that a lot of crazy questions. Here's the thing. I came across some, uh, some, some stats this past week regarding Google. This is interesting. Over 40,000 questions are asked of Google not every day, not every hour, every single second. Across the world, over 40,000 questions every second are asked of Google. That's over 3.5 billion per day, over 1.2 trillion per year. We live in a question-asking culture, right? We live in a question-asking culture. I remember when I was a kid, man, I used to always ask questions. And my mom, my poor mom, I can still remember her, you know, just standing there in the doorway between the kitchen and the dining room 
on the phone, and I would just be constantly. This was the, the pointer of death right here. And I would just, on, on, her, on her arm, mama, 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 right? That's probably one of the reasons she's enjoying heaven beyond what anybody can even imagine right now because she doesn't have those kinds of questions that have to be asked. We live in a question-asking culture. And when we begin to think about questions, we usually fall down in one of maybe three different camps or so. When we think about asking questions, one, there's a group who just treat questions as, as nothing but an annoyance, right? Maybe you're one of those people. You don't like to have questions asked. You don't like to have people come to you, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's in your family or whether it's when your friends ask you questions. And you treat questions like it's a one big annoying ordeal to be endured, right? You don't like questions. You don't ever ask questions. You, you, they just annoy you, right? So that's sort of one perspective, wrongly, I think, that we have when it comes to questions. But we also, when we think about questions, there's also a response where we take it personally, Right? You ever ask somebody a question, maybe at work especially, and you roll this question out, and they take offense that you would even ask such a question. It's like, what, what are you questioning me? Why are you questioning me? Are you questioning my integrity? Are you questioning my knowledge? You know? And sometimes when we think about questions, we take them personally so we don't ever ask them. There's even more of a danger when we look at it from a spiritual sense where we never ask questions of our faith. We never ask questions of this book called the Bible. We never ask questions of God. Why? Because mistakenly and in a very dangerous sense, sometimes we think of questions on a spiritual level as, as, as uh, basically having no faith. And we never ask God questions. We never, we never ask questions of the, of the word whenever we read. We never ask questions of the text. Why? Because we think wrongly, if I only had more faith, I wouldn't have so many questions. I think that's such a dangerous place to be. I think one of the worst things we can do is to never ask questions. In fact, here's a takeaway, and I hope you'll jot this down. And we're going to kind of sift this through this whole entire series. Again, today's an intro. We're going to start dealing with some questions that you've submitted here uh, uh, starting next Sunday specifically. But here's a takeaway that we're going to sift through this whole series. And the, the simple takeaway is this, that your spiritual walk should be filled with questions. And that, that, that may sound so backwards. And for some of you, it may not even seem to ring true. It may, it, it may just not seem to square up with the way you've always looked at your walk with God or spiritual things. But your spiritual life should be filled with questions. In fact, every time you sit down to read the Bible, the, the, the vast majority of this book is written in a narrative form meaning it's written as a story. It's the David versus Goliath. It's a narrative. It's a running account. It's a running story, all of it true. It's Jesus feeding the 5,000. That is called a narrative passage. It is, it is a running story, every bit of it true. And it's so easy for us to follow. Now, parts of this book are written as poetry. Parts of this book are written as, as, in a, a, like a didactic nature where it's teaching. Like Paul's writing a letter to the Corinthians and he's teaching them, you know, you need to do this or you need to stop doing that. But the vast majority, much of this book is written as a narrative that is so easy to read. And here's what happens is we'll read those narrative passages of scripture, or we'll even read some of the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament. And we never put our minds there. We never let our minds go to the midst of that story and think, what was it like there? And we never ask questions of the text. When, when Lazarus died, one of Jesus' closest friends, he had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And when Lazarus died, some of you know this, some of you don't, Jesus received word and he just sort of held tight where he was. He didn't go rushing to the city where Lazarus was dying. In fact, when he got there, four days had passed. Lazarus has already been buried. The funeral's already over. 
Jesus is met by his sisters, Mary and Martha, and one of them made the comment, Lord, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. What do we think they felt like? You know, do we just read a passage like that and just sort of, whoop, just move on to John chapter 12. Let's keep on reading. I got to get this reading done. Or do we pause and ask questions? What was it like for these two sisters whose brother died and the Lord that they served didn't come on time, they thought? Do I ever feel that way? What does this teach me about how God deals with me and about how I should deal with God when I go through times where there are lots of questions, right? We never ask questions of the text. We never ask questions about our faith. And our spiritual walk should be filled. I mean, it should be filled with questions. Now, when you look at questions, when, there, when I'm speaking of burning questions, there, there are two basic tracks in a sense. I mean, one are those questions that are asked with kind of an antagonistic attitude. Jesus faced those all the time. God's big enough to handle them. We've gotten burning questions already that are antagonistic. The one we'll deal with next Sunday, I think. It's just sort of red, sort of antagonistic, but it'll be exciting to deal with. It's a great question. Some of you have friends that are, have questions about God. They have questions about Jesus. They have questions about Christianity. They have questions about the Bible. They have questions about what it means to be in a relationship with the Lord. They have legitimate questions, but some of them are antagonistic. They're far from God. They're angry at God. They had a circumstance in their life that, that, that they can't reconcile with a God who loves them, and they're filled with questions. And when they ask those questions, it's very antagonistic. You know what? God can handle those. But then there's also that second level of questions where those are questions that are asked not antagonistically. We're not trying to trap God or trying to you know, explain God away. But, but there are another level of questions where they are asked with a searching heart. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. Take a look at what it says on the overhead. Jeremiah 29, 13. God says a, an amazing truth through, through Jeremiah. You will seek me and find me when you search for me. When you search for me with all your heart. And when we bring our questions to God, not trying to trap him, not questioning his integrity, even though he's still big enough to handle that, but when we come to him with our genuine questions, not saying, oh, I should have more faith, God's not going to accept my questions, but when we come to him with an open heart and a right spirit, man, God does a wonderful thing with the questions that we ask. In fact, what we find, listen to this, what we find is oftentimes our questions that are asked with that right, humble, searching attitude are a gateway to life change in our lives. And many times it's those questions that we ask, the hard questions that nobody else can answer. Dr. Phil can't answer them. Oprah can't answer them. No YouTube video is going to be able to answer them for us. But we bring those to God and we ask with a genuine searching heart. And it's a question that plagues us and that rocks us. And when we ask it with the right spirit and a right heart and we come to God's word with the right attitude, what we often find is that question is not a display of a lack of faith. It is a gateway to growth and to transformation and to life change in us. Let me give you an example of this. It's in Matthew chapter 11. Did you turn there already? Let me, I get two services confused. Matthew chapter 11. If you didn't turn there already, go ahead and turn there. I think the first service I told him to turn there, you I didn't. So Matthew chapter 11, go ahead and find your spot. Here's a little bit of the backstory. In Matthew chapter 11, by the time we get to this point, there are kind of two players in this passage. One is Jesus, God, Messiah, Savior. The other is a man named John the Baptist. And in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist has already experienced quite a few things at this point in his life as they relate to the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 11, at this point, John the Baptist has already baptized Jesus. 
Now, in an earthly sense, John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins. You know, I'll spare the whole family tree review, right? But in an earthly sense, they are cousins. But in a spiritual sense, John the Baptist was the one that God had chosen to be kind of the, 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 the one who paved the way for the Messiah. John the Baptist would come and he would preach. He'd preach a message of repentance. He'd preach a very hard message that would just rattle the cage of all the religious folks. And John the Baptist was the one that God had chosen to pave the way for the Messiah. So John has already now, at this point, by the time we get to chapter 11 in Matthew, he's already baptized Jesus He's already seen the Holy Spirit descend as a dove from heaven. He's already heard the voice audibly from, of God the Father saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, this is like the Trinity showing up right there on the spot. John the Baptist has seen all this. He's already announced Jesus is the Lamb of God, right? He knows who Jesus is, but now his circumstances personally have created questions in his heart. And rather than saying, no, I can't ask this question because I should have more faith, rather than having an antagonistic attitude, he asks a genuine, searching, humble question of Jesus. And it's interesting how Jesus responds. And so let's jump in there. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2 and verse 3. So it says, now when John, this is John the Baptist, while imprisoned, let me pause there for a moment. What's he doing in prison? John's circumstance had changed because John had the courage to speak out against Herod, the ruler at the time. And the way he spoke out to Herod was not anything to do with taxes or you know, any personal preference of his. He spoke out against Herod because Herod was breaking the moral law of God by being in an adulterous relationship. And John the Baptist called them out on it. And Herod threw him in prison. Later, John the Baptist would ultimately be beheaded. And so he calls Herod out on it. He's, called, he's thrown into prison. Let's pick it up again. When John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. He had his kind of group of followers. And he said, and said to him, said to Jesus, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? This is an interesting passage of scripture. For some reason, I don't know why. I don't know if I've ever heard this passage ever preached on. I preached on it years and years ago, but it, it has always been just such an interesting passage of scripture to me for this reason, that you've got John the Baptist, for goodness sakes. I mean, this is one of the greatest people. Jesus pretty much said that, the greatest ever walk the earth, who's ever been just a normal, average, ordinary person. And John the Baptist, who had witnessed everything he had seen, and yet now his circumstances had changed. He's thrown into prison all for something that he had done rightly, not wrongly. And he's beginning to have these questions swirl in his mind. And the question is this, you know, Jesus, I know that I baptized you. And I remember all that part about this is my son whom I'm well pleased. I remember seeing the Holy Spirit like a dove coming down. I remember all that stuff. But, but you know what, man, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Uh, he sends his followers to ask Jesus, are you really truly the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for as Jews all these years, all these centuries? Are you really the expected one? Or... Uh, somehow, have we just missed it? Maybe I had a bad day and I just misinterpreted some stuff. You know, should we just keep waiting for the Messiah to come? That is a great question. Jesus didn't chastise him. He didn't send these, message, these disciples back with a message that said, hey, tell the John, John the Baptist, tell him he needs to have more faith. Don't bring me another stupid question like that ever again. He didn't say that. 
Jesus didn't say, give John the Baptist the message that if he ever gets out of prison, he, he's got 30 days on suspension, no more preaching, no more teaching, till after 30 days are done because he's not as godly as I thought he was. He didn't say that. Look at what he says, verse 4 and verse 5. Jesus answered and he said to them, said to his followers, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. And he quotes from the Old Testament that the blind receive sight and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. In this way, Jesus was basically saying, you go back and tell John that in the midst of his questions, number one, he brought his question to the right place, and number two, you just affirm his faith and let him know that I am him. I am the Messiah. And he gave him the evidence that would have been, for us, we read this and think, what's all this with the blind and the lame and the lepers? And hey, for John, this, this, you, Jesus could have like stamped, yes, I'm the Messiah on a piece of paper, and it would have not been much more compelling than this right here. I mean, they knew when the person comes along who does this, that's the Messiah. And Jesus dealt with his questions gently, and he didn't chastise him for those questions, but yet he affirmed his faith, and he gave John what he needed to see for him to be able to walk further and to walk deeper in that faith. And so we're in this series, what we're going to do is we're going to look at those questions. We've got about 25, close to 30 now that have been submitted. Uh, you can submit them out there in the lobby, on the, in, the, in the box. There's a little box with a little Burning Questions logo out there. Uh, it's kind of cool because during the week I'll go out and check it. It's kind of like fishing. It's like checking a crab trap. You know, it's like, hey, we caught some. You know, I got the questions, put them in the stack. Or I get some that come in as an email. They're all anonymous again. And they're all variety. Some of them deal with Christianity. Some of them don't. We're, we're trying to keep it towards Christianity. I know I can't get to every single one of them, but um, uh, some are really serious and deep. Others, maybe not so much. Let me show you two that I got uh, kind of early on that came in anonymously via email, somewhat anonymously. Let's go ahead and bring up the first one if we can. And it's still got the email stuff on there. You can see it was sent May 12th. These come to me. This is what it looks like. So there's no, unless you type your name into the question, it's not going to show up. So it's genuinely anonymous. So this was the question. What does the Bible say about old pastors like 50 plus year olds? All right, so that, that was the uh, burning question that was submitted May 12th, 3.24 p.m. Check that timestamp, May 12th, 3.24 p.m. There was another one soon after. Uh, let's go to the next one, May 12th. Let's go ahead and roll the next one if we can. May 12th, 3.25 p.m. Is there anything wrong with a children's pastor being too good looking? So, <laughs> they're all anonymous, all right? All these questions, there's not one name typed in on that question at all. So, I'm glad, thankfully, we've got some better, more anonymous questions than, than those. And, uh, and, and so, that's what we're going to do. We're going to pull those. You can take that down. It's almost nauseating after a point. And so... <clears throat> And so those are the questions we're going to deal with, some that are a little bit better than those. So, so what do we aim for? Let me just share with you um, kind of what we're aiming for in a series like this. But one thing we're aiming for is to be able to involve those who are far from God in discussions about our faith. You know, it's not just, it's not a gimmick. It's not a ploy to say, hey, we've got a QR code on the cards outside there. Be sure to ask your coworkers, you know, what kind of burning questions do you have? If you could ask one question of God about the Christian faith, what would you ask? It's not just a gimmick. You know, it's, it's not a ploy. It is a genuine opportunity for you and for me to be able to have conversations with people that we have a good sense may be far from God, but yet there are still questions rattled around in their heart. 
And it gives them an opportunity to ask those questions. And it gives them an opportunity maybe through your invite to even come and possibly hear that question dealt with in a way that's going to be very upfront and it's going to use God's word to do it and, uh, and not a hammer. And so it's a way for us to engage. This series helps us to engage with those who are far from God. And the second thing it does, it gives us some perspective about our faith. It gives us some perspective because we don't want to answer the questions nobody's asking. What this series does is it enables us. We've already had some questions that were asked in different ways, but it's the same question. Helps us to see what are the questions that people are really asking. Hopefully not just church people, right? Hopefully people that are outside the walls of this church that still think about God maybe more than you and I think they do. And they've got lots of questions that need answers. But also we want to demonstrate ultimately in a way that's very compelling, in a way that's um, not disingenuous in the least, but is faithful to God's Word, why Christianity as a belief system is the best opportunity for us to know truth as God has given it. You see, when you think about Christianity, and that's what this series is about, burning questions on Christianity. When you think about Christianity, Christianity is one of three major monotheistic religions in the world. All three of those major monotheistic religions are different but it's Christianity that is distanced from the other two simply because of what we do with the person of Jesus. One of those monotheistic religions, meaning at the centerpiece of their religion is a worship of what they understand to be one God, would be Islam. The Islam religion, the Muslim faith, is one that has their understanding of God, and we won't go into those details for the sake of time, but their understanding of God is at the center. They don't worship a plurality of gods as the Hindu religion would. There is one God in the center of their belief system. Judaism, the second major world, world religion that is monotheistic in nature, also has one God at the center of their belief system. Now, you would agree with the bulk, if not all, of the Judaistic understanding of God except on the person of Jesus because that's where they diverge and go a different direction. They're still waiting for their Messiah. Generally speaking, there are Messianic Jews that have placed their faith in Jesus, but as a world religion, Judaism is still waiting for their Messiah. Where Christianity comes down differently is that we're also a one God belief system, a monotheistic belief system, but we believe that Jesus is that Messiah. And when you begin to look at these belief systems, they all come down at different places at times on certain issues in certain, certain places, but what Christianity does is that it presents truth based on what God has communicated us to us through this book called the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament alike. For the Christian faith, for the Christian belief system, it is a belief in one God that has showed him, who has showed himself in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the, God the Holy Spirit, all are God, and yet they are separate entities, separate persons, yet we believe still in one God as Scripture portrays him. The story of the Christian faith, the true story according to God's word, is that this God, this one God, chose at a point in time to create. It wasn't his beginning point. God is eternal without beginning and without end. And yet at a point in time, God chose to create. And everything that we see from the birds to the trees to the rhinos to whatever this thing is, right, to you and your kids, everything we see in creation was created as, an, as a result of the creative action of God, the one true living God. 
As a part of his creative activity, he also created mankind. And when he created us, he created us in perfection in the world that he had made. And yet there, in the midst of that creation, God allowed for and he built into the design the option for mankind to choose on his own whether he would follow God or whether he would not. And in the midst of that system which God created by his own design, there was a point in time where mankind chose to rebel against God to go his own independent way and to chart a new course. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that. God calls it sin. And two things happened that were tragic to God's creation when sin entered as a result of man's choice. One, mankind began to die physically. Genesis chapter 5, it's like you can hear the death bell ring over and over and over through the phrase that says, and he died, and he died, and he died, name after name, Genesis chapter 5, and throughout the rest of the book, all the way up to us today. Death came because of sin. But there was also a second kind of death, that being a spiritual death, a separation from God spiritually. For Adam and Eve, they began to hide from God right there, that very moment when they sinned. We've been hiding from God in creative ways ever since. In the midst of the story, for us as Christians, it's a division between the two Testaments, old and new. We find that God's Redeemer, God's uh, uh, Savior did come, the Messiah, Jesus, God Himself. And when He came, He literally divided time in half. It was B.C. and there was now A.D. He, he was that much of a figure in history. And when He came, He lived a perfect life. And He Himself, without beginning and without end, He stepped into God's creation, born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life, and He was ultimately crucified crucified on a cross. And the reason he was crucified was not so that like many of the other religions of, or most religions of the world, not so that we can get to God by being better or trying harder or being good enough. Jesus came and died so that our sin can be paid for and we can be reconciled to the God who had created us in the first place. See, we don't get to God. We don't get back to Him by joining a church or by being baptized or by just uh, assembling a list of good deeds. I mean, if you think right now that you're getting into heaven because you're better than somebody else, because you're not Hitler or you're not like you know, Saddam Hussein or because you, you, you haven't done the A-list of bad stuff, it doesn't work that way. And if it did work that way, we would have a very hard time reconciling and answering the question, then why did Jesus have to die on a cross in the first place? If all I have to do is get wet in a baptistry, if all I have to do is come talk to a pastor and join a church, if all I have to do is just make sure my good outweighs my bad, and then I avoid certain lists of bad sins, then why did Jesus have to die? He died because we needed a Savior. (laughs) That's what separates Christianity that our Savior didn't just die, but He rose again from the dead. That is the hinge. That is the dividing line. It's what defines Christianity for what it is in the first place, that we can only know God. Yet through that event, we're not all going to heaven. We come to Him on His terms. We lay down our sin. The Bible calls that repentance, and we place our faith in Jesus. We say, Lord, I don't just believe in you up here. Even the devil knows that. I don't believe in you up here between the ears of my mind. No, I believe in you to such a degree that volitionally, as an act of my will, I turn over and I yield the control of my life to you, believing that you died and rose for my sin, and now I yield myself to follow you. And when that happens, (laughs) man, everything changes. You go from sinner to saint. You go from dead to alive. 
You go from no hope to filled with hope, both in this life and in the next one to come. That's what makes Christianity what it is. And when we look through this series, what we're going to see is that every religion makes claims to truth. Even the atheist has truth claims. One of his truth claims is there is no God. Now, there's no evidence to support that, and it's a very faulty belief system. Every religion has claims to truth, but what we're going to find in the series is that truth does exist. God has communicated it in his word, and the truth is undeniable. It's absolute. And what we do with it makes all the difference in the world. So what does all this mean? What this means is that God's big enough then to handle our questions. He's dealt with questions all the way through the pages of Scripture. And the questions that you have are questions that he'd be glad to deal with. The questions that you have are questions that he very possibly has already answered in his word. So four things to consider, and then we're about done. That as we move through this series, you may want to jot these down. We've got one on the overhead. Four things to consider. Three things to consider and one question to consider. The first one is this, that God is fully capable of handling any questions that we have. He's fully capable of handling your questions. So don't be afraid. Don't think, well, I can't, I can't question God, right? You're not questioning his character. You're not questioning his goodness. He can handle your questions where you just genuinely want to know. Second thing to ponder, and this is kind of more of a question, I guess, and it's a big a big question. Are you willing to handle his answers when he gives them? And are you willing to handle maybe sometimes even his silence? See, God doesn't answer every question. He's given us everything we need to know in his word, everything we need to know. This is enough for us to know. Everything else he'll let us know when the time is right. It's kind of like when you're a little kid and you ask questions to your parents. What does this mean? What does that mean? What is that? Uh, what's up with this? What's up with that? And your parents say, you know what? One day, time's going to be right. But for now, just know this. God is much the same. He's given us what we need to know. When we bring questions to him, listen, sometimes his answers are going to require much of us. Christianity is not for wimps. A life fully yielded to Jesus requires dying daily to ourself and our desires and our rights. <laughs> and sometimes the answers that God brings, we have to be willing to handle them. And sometimes when he doesn't answer it, we have to decide whether we're going to follow him or whether we're not. If we're not question, careful, sometimes our answer, a search for answers can become an idol unto itself. Right? I'm not going to follow God unless he sorts this out for me. No, we need to be willing to trust him based on what we already know. Number three, just the third thing for us ultimately <clears throat> to consider. Scripture, when we deal with it and it speaks definitively, is trustworthy and it settles all debate. This is so important for us to recognize up front that when you submit burning questions, and again, I can't possibly get to all of them. We'll be doing a series for a long, long time if we did that. But the ones we deal with, when Scripture speaks definitively in response to that question, that in itself settles all debate. We, we can't say, oh, I know that's what the Bible says, but I saw this YouTube video. <laughs> hey, there's a lot of good stuff on YouTube, I'm sure, but it doesn't settle debate. Where God's Word speaks, it does. Oh, but Brooks, you, you don't understand. I was talking to a coworker of mine just the other day about this very same question. And she said, yeah, I'm sure she's a good person, right? I'm sure she's got a lot of neat views, a lot of good stuff, and maybe some stuff that's not quite, you know, online. But 
coworker conversations don't settle the debate. When Scripture speaks definitively, we have to be willing to say that that settles it for me, and now I'm going to walk in that truth. And the last thing to be aware of is that when we ask questions in humility with a humble heart, that the desire is that God wants for us is not just to know the truth, but to begin to live it and to apply it. You know, I think about Mary in the book of Luke, the Christmas story, when the news came to her from the angel that um, you're going to have a child and he's going to be the savior of the world. And what did Mary say there in Luke? She said, she said, how can this be? Because I'm just a virgin. Just a genuine, heartfelt question. Not being antagonistic, not questioning the character of God, just a genuine, heartfelt, humble question that was asked. And when she found out the answer to that question, God would use her in a lot of ways to impact history, raising the very Messiah under her roof, not without questions, but bringing those questions to the right place. Two things that I'm done. I want to say something that's important, I think, to believers and then something to those who are not believers here. First of all, to believers, just be sure that the questions that you ask of God are always undergirded by your trust in God. You know, we would hope we'd always be bringing questions to God. Sometimes the difficulties of life creates questions, and when we bring those questions to God, just understand that undergirding that should be our trust in God, that even if God doesn't answer our questions, even if the answer is not what we expected, that we still trust in Him. And for those who are not followers of Jesus, you're still examining the claims of Christ, still deciding whether or not you're at a place ready to yield yourself to Him. Again, just keep in mind that sincere questions of God often open the door to life change, to transformation. So don't be afraid to ask questions of God. He's fully capable of handling them. But understand that when He gives His answer, and He gives His answer through His Word, His desire for us is that we submit, that we believe, and that we follow. So what questions do you have? about the Christian faith today? What are the questions that your friends and your co-workers and those who are far from God are asking? Would you be willing to invite them to just let her rip? Ask the question. And maybe even invite them and let's see how, how God answers it and what the implications are if we only believe and follow.